Well, good afternoon, or good evening, everyone. Um, it's super to be with you today. Um, my name's Andy, like Toby said. Um, in, in the day, my job's a head teacher, um, and very kindly, they've brought me a flip chart to use today. So that will be something uh, to look forward to um, in a moment. Um, but being a head teacher, I've got to be honest, it's been difficult this term, but I'm so grateful to have had a job where I get, have an excuse to get out of the house, to meet with my colleagues, and it's amazing just to be in the building today, coming to church for the first time, actually physically, for quite a long time. Well, I'm really excited today to be talking to us as we start this new eight-week series, Beautiful Resistance. And the talk today is called The Church Coming Back to Life. I read the book I've got it here with me just to show you. Uh, I read it in the summer, found it really provoking, really inspiring. And I'm excited to be starting this journey um, with us, almost today providing a bit of a backdrop or a bit of a frame for the journey that we're going to go on as a church. Because today we're going to look at the church, not the building, not the institution, not the organisation. And in many ways, it, it's quite interesting that we're all spread around the city today because that's the church, the people, you and I, how we can live distinctive lives in this city, that's going to be our focus today. And I don't know what your view of the church is like, I don't know what your experience has been, I don't know what words or phrases you'd use to describe it, but I think if I went into the street today, uh, tried to find anyone who might be around, there's hardly anyone around in the centre here, but said to them, you know, what's your view of the church? I think we'd have a huge range of answers. I think on one side, you'd hear words like this, irrelevant hypocritical, deluded, dead, old. In the middle, you might find people indifferent. They might say kind, nice. Um, at other ends, you might find Christians who might talk about the church being a place of hope and healing. Well, the truth is that the church over many years, at different points in time, has been all of these things. Sometimes radiant and beautiful, transformational in society but there's also been years when the church has compromised on values and on its beliefs and the book Beautiful Resistance opens up with this story from the Second World War. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor living under the Nazi rule and he realised that the church was beginning to compromise, beginning to give in to the regime and he was given a house up on a hill that looked down onto a training camp that the Nazis were using to train their leaders at the time. And challenged by what he saw in the church, he decided that he wanted to use this house to do the exact opposite, to train Christian leaders to stand strong in the church at that time. And there's a little story about one day when one of his friends comes and challenges him and says, Dietrich, what, what are you doing? Do you know how, how much danger you're putting yourself in? And Dietrich Bonhoeffer looked down at the camp and he looked up at the house and he said to his friend, this thing that we're doing in this house must be stronger than that, and, and looking down at the camp. And that's the premise of the book, that's the premise of this series. And referencing Bonhoeffer in his book, John Tyson writes this, Discipleship must be stronger than cultural formation. Loyalty must be stronger than compromise. This must be stronger than that. The time's called for a beautiful resistance. And today, I want to speak about the church that I believe we must become. All around the country at this moment, all the talk, you'll have heard it, is about the vaccine. My social media feed is just a stream of photographs of parents and grandparents and selfies of people having their first vaccine. My parents had it last week, and I'm so excited about that. It's an astonishing piece of work, isn't it, by scientists, by the people who designed it, the people who are rolling it out. And it brings a level of hope um, to our country that starts to brighten the horizon for us. But it's the truth 
that it's the church, not the vaccine, that is God's plan for reaching, redeeming and rescuing the earth. The vaccine will hopefully help us to get back to normal and and after the year we had, um, I'm as excited as anyone about that. But I want to be more excited about the church. I want to be more passionate about the role that we can play in reflecting God's love to this hurting city, to our nation and to the world. You see, the church is God's bride. His passion, his plan A, his rescue plan. Bill Hybels, an American pastor, said this, the local church is the hope of the world. Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, wrote this uh, in 1 Peter 2. You're a chosen people. He's writing to us, the church, chosen, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. That's who we are as a church, God's special possession. And so today I'm speaking about becoming a distinctive people. I want to encourage you over the next few weeks as we journey through this book in groups and on Sundays to seriously and intentionally dig deep and consider where there might be areas of compromise in your lives and in my life and how we, partnering together with Jesus, can become an uncompromising and radiant church in this city for this moment. John Tyson goes on in his book, Beautiful Resistance, and says this, There is hope. Each generation of believers is given an opportunity to tell the story of Jesus through the local church. Regardless of her history, and we've talked about how how that's been, we get to put the brilliance of Jesus on display. And in our passage today, Toby read for us earlier, Jesus is calling his followers to be salt and light. And just prior to the reading, Toby references, Jesus sets out a vision for distinctive living. What it looks like, it's called the Sermon on the Mount, or or maybe you've heard of it as the Beatitudes. He shows us what distinctive Christian living and discipleship is all about. It's a way of life that he modelled to us when he walked on the earth. And from a translation of the Bible called The Message, I'm just going to read a couple of them to you. You're blessed, Jesus says, when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God and his rule. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are. No more, no less. You see, this is an upside-down way of living. And it contradicts so many of the messages we see in the world. But it's this distinctive life that Jesus is calling us to live as we follow him. The Beatitudes call us to live the way that Jesus lives. It's almost like the personality and values of the kingdom are now expressed through our own values and our personalities in our time. And then after that, Jesus comes on to this passage, and I'm going to quickly read it again. You're the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? And then really strong from Jesus, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And you are the light of the world. A town built on on a hill cannot be hidden, and neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before men, before others, sorry, that you may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So today we're going to quickly look at these two metaphors, two simple things, salt and light, and ask the question, number one, how do we restore the saltiness in our lives? And then number two, how do we turn up the light and illuminate Jesus to the world around us? So first, restoring the saltiness. Jesus finished his Sermon on the Mount by telling his followers that they were the salt of the earth. Now in the first century, salt 
had a little bit more street grill, I think, than it does today. Whilst today we're trying to limit the amount of salt that we eat, in Jesus' time, salt is a valuable commodity. It was one of the ways that Roman soldiers were paid. It's where you get that phrase from, oh, he wasn't worth his salt, when a soldier hadn't lived up to the task. You know, salt's an amazing preserver. So it would have been used to preserve meat and other food, but it was also a gift, I found out. It was a mark of friendship. So if you turned up uh, to dinner as a guest, like nowadays you might bring a bottle of wine or a bunch of flowers, if you can even remember doing that. Um, in those days, in the first century, you bring salt and you sprinkle it together onto the meal. So salt carried a sense of worth, of value, of friendship. And I, and I think one of the things for us today, when Jesus calls us the salt of the earth... I think he'd want to communicate to us something of value, that we're important, we're his special possession, we read about in that verse, a value of friendship and significance. But salt is also potent. Just one grain of salt on your tongue makes quite a different and quite a significant impression. Now, I remember one of my memories of school was playing endless practical jokes on each other as friends. I remember it particularly when I was sort of 12 and 13 year old. And one of the classics, and you may have experienced yourself, took place at lunchtime. Just loosening the top of the salt cellar and then leaving it on the side. And I remember one occasion, I was taking the final seat at the dining room table at school. And I was the recipient of one of my friend's jokes and I didn't find it particularly funny on this occasion. So it was Friday... It was Fish and Chip Friday, which was a highlight in my week. And I remember tipping the entire tub of salt, accidentally of course, on top of my food. There was no way I was going to go back to the queue and start again, not only because of the embarrassment of it. So I remember scraping the salt to the side of my plate, covering it in vinegar as much as I could get, and then trying to make my way through a meal that had basically been totally ruined. Salt is potent. Salt is uncompromising. Salt is concentrated in flavour. So how do we restore the saltiness in our lives? As Jesus is calling his followers to live distinctively, how do we make sure that we don't compromise, that we don't lose our saltiness, but instead we take on the character, the values, the personality of Jesus in a way that reaches our city? Well, the central principle of the book, Beautiful Resistance, is this phrase, this must be stronger than that. And for me, restoring saltiness is primarily about looking into how we are shaped as Christians. It's about a word, discipleship, or you might call it apprenticeship, becoming more like Jesus by spending time with him, becoming like him, and doing the things that he did. And it's what we're going to look to dig deep into as we go through this season of these eight weeks. And as I said at the beginning, I'm a head teacher, um, and I'm a teacher at heart, and I love a diagram and I came across a diagram a few years back which we're going to use today to talk about this through so I'm going to flip the paper here in a dramatic fashion and reveal not only a diagram but a mathematical diagram which makes me very happy so triangle one and the premise of this diagram uh, apologies for my handwriting which I should have said at the beginning um, is that we're, we're being formed every human is being formed all of the time you know we're a disciple of something um, the question is, is what are we being formed into? We're being shaped by these things around the triangle that you can see here. It's not intentional. I don't wake up in the morning and decide to be formed like that. It just happens purely because I'm alive and I'm happy and I'm living my day-to-day -day life. So right at the top here, we're shaped by the stories we believe. You know, I know from primary school that kids love stories. We're born to love stories. The stories we believe affect the way that we live. The stories we're bombarded with in 21st century living through social media, Netflix, business, education, they affect the way that we live. 
They shape us, they shape our perspective, they change what we value, they form us, and then the way that we live and the things that we do kind of spill out of that. So we're, first of all, we're shaped by those stories. We're shaped by also our habits too. What we do, we become. Somehow, habits seem to form really quickly. We don't even need to think about them, and then we suddenly realise the impact they're having on us, and they're so hard to break. A bit of a trivial habit that I got into is when I left the university, I remember getting my first graduate job at Orange. Um, some of you may not even have heard of Orange, but it was one of the mobile phone, co phone companies based in Bristol. And every day, my colleagues and I would head down to the cafe about 10 o'clock and order the most disc heavily discounted fry-up I think you could get in the city. It always worked out about 87p or £1.12 or something like that. Um, I never took any medical advice on this. I never, I never kind of did a cost-benefit analysis on this fry-up. But I think it started, and then for about three years I was there, I think I could count on one hand the number of days that I missed my fry-up. And I used to go down to the place, pile up my plate high with processed meat, and then enjoy it with my friends. I'm not having a go at fry-ups, absolutely not. I love, I love going out for brunch. But without thinking, we quickly find habits forming in our lives, and they affect us. They shape us, and they start to weaken the saltiness, or maybe not in the case of a fry-up. But our loves and our longings are diverted through the habits that we find ourselves in. The third way that we get shaped is through relationships. Again, I think it's mainly un unintentional. We become like the people that we hang out with. We dress like them, we think like them, we talk like them, we probably vote like them. And it's not always a bad thing. Friends can be a great thing and a great influence, and it could be in between. But, the, but whatever happens, we're formed by the friendships that, that we meet. Also, living in a city like Bristol, I put it right in the middle of our triangle, because I think all of this ties together. We find ourselves shaped by that. In my street, I feel judged when I put out my recycling pile, and it's not as big as my neighbours next door. Um, I've adopted a new sourdough habit after one of my neighbours decided to, to start baking 20 sourdough loaves a week and then WhatsApping them out and selling them to the, to the people there. When I bought my car recently, second hand, I bought a diesel and I found myself having to mentally justify myself as I drive past my neighbours plugging their hybrid Tesla into the wall. You know, I love this city. I love the culture. I love the sourdough. I love its passion for the environment, for recycling, for cycling. But the point is this, the people and the environment we live in also shape us, sometimes great things, sometimes not so great things. So if just by waking up and going through our day we're being formed in ways that could compromise our saltiness as Christians, how do we restore it? How do we dig deep and ensure that whilst these things here do shape us, they will do, we're also shaped by something greater, by Jesus? Well, the good news for you all is that there is a second triangle, and I'm going to draw it in front of you on the side over here, because um, there is another triangle, and we can be shaped more by Jesus than the world around us. And so at the top here, um, countering the stories that we believe, and I can't spell because I'm in life, <laughs> is teaching. Um, teaching, because where the, where the world tells us stories about our identity, about our sexuality, about the value of work, and money about the value that we have. The teachings of Jesus, if we intentionally look for them through reading the Bible, through hearing teaching, if we prioritise things, they start to form us, they start to shape us. The story of the Bible, the good news of the Gospel, tells us that we, ha we don't have to earn God's love. It tells us that we're unique, that we're made by God, that we're completely loved and forgiven, no matter what we've done, and it gives us a purpose. Pete Hughes, a church leader from London, has this quote that I love. The story that we live in 
is the story that we live out. Let's let God's story about us and his church shape our perspectives and be the primary story that we live in as believers. Now, this next one is difficult to spell. It's practices. You never know whether it's a C or an S, but I think I've got it right there. How do we counteract the unhelpful habits that can unintentionally form our lives? We do that through practices. These are disciplines that help to shape us. Just like we become shaped by our habits and they they reorder our loves and desires, so practices do the same, but in a way that helps us become more like Jesus. I'll give you an example from my own life. I've always been driven, ambitious. I became a head teacher when I was 34, but what was driving me was this story which was about needing to work hard to prove myself, to earn kudos and popularity through success. But I quickly learned that it is unsustainable. The pattern of life that I was living actually wasn't any good for me. And the truth is that I still have to battle with this every day and find balance. And a year ago, almost to this day, Kate and I read a book together um, and we started to practice this thing called the Sabbath. I'd known about it, but I'd never tried it out. The Sabbath is a practice of basically taking 24 hours where we stop. We turn off our phones, our laptops, our email, and we spend a day resting, walking, eating, worshipping, enjoying everything that God's given us. And it's an act of resistance against the way I've been living and the way of the world. I didn't find it easy to start doing it. In fact, I found it really hard just to stop. But quickly, I noticed something happening. By the end of the 24 hours, I was less irritable, more content with what we had, more in tune with my kids and the family. The practices here of Jesus, if we can embed them into our lives, they restore the saltiness and they enable us to live distinctive lives. Finally, community. So where we had relationships, um, I'm going to write community. And this is us. This is the church. A group of people from all kinds of backgrounds that you would never have met otherwise, but who help to encourage us, to challenge us, to inspire us as we look to disciple and apprentice under Jesus and become more like him in his character, his habits and his personality. I'm really excited about this next series that we're going to go through because on Sundays and in groups, we're basically taking these three elements of the right-hand triangle, the teaching of Jesus, looking at the practices of Jesus through our Tuesday groups as well, and then how we can put them into action, all within a context of the church, within our groups, where we look to cheer each other on. One final thing on saltiness, it's not just about us. Um, This does require us to dig deep. You know, forming Christ-like character will take a lifetime. And in our microwave and delivery culture, it's not something that we're very good at. But it's like training, not because we have to, but because we want to. And we're not alone. We do it in partnership with Jesus. Through his Holy Spirit working inside us, we are being transformed into his likeness. So in the middle here, um, I need a pen to write with in the middle here, the Holy Spirit is the one who lives inside of us, helping us to develop um, as, as, a, as someone who can follow in the pattern of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18 says this, And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. As a church, let's pursue this intentional forming of our character, becoming more and more potent, more and more salty, more and more uncompromising as individuals and as a church. So point one is restoring our saltiness. Point two, turn up our light. I'm going to finish with this point. You know, why are we called to be salty? 
Why are we called to shine brightly? Well, it's because the city needs it. The faith we have is not for ourselves. It's to be shared. It's to spill out. It's to shine into the darkest places. Because you could argue that the best way for us to stay salty is to shut our doors, throw away our phones, remove ourselves from our culture. But what use is a pile of salt stored up in a building somewhere? What use is a stack of torches that have been stored away in a warehouse? You see, this potent, uncompromising salt needs to be sprinkled into every area, every family, every demographic, every school, every university and business across this city. This illuminating light, which glorifies God and points to him, needs to permeate, to infiltrate every area of darkness around us. How do we do it? Well, for me, it's about each of us, salty, distinctive, making small but authentic acts of resistance that shine the light of Jesus into the city around us. Like one grain of salt, when you put it on your tongue, it makes a difference. Well, so that small, authentic but potent act ripples the love of Jesus into your community. You know, lockdown's been really tough. And working in school right now, you'll imagine there's a really high level of anxiety, um, particularly from the staff around COVID-19. And for quite a while, I've carried that as a leader. Um, And I've had to learn that if I can find peace in God, just like in the Beatitudes, I can then bring that peace just simply by having a non-anxious presence in school. And as imperfect as I am, bringing something of God's peace into our situation. You see, these two points, salt and light, for me then merge into one. Because as we dig deep into the stories of Jesus, as we try to put in place some of the practices of Jesus that we're going to look at through these next few weeks, as we live in community with other Christians at St Nick's, and then as we allow the Holy Spirit to fill us, to transform us, we restore our saltiness, and we can then turn up our light, reflecting the love and the light of Jesus into our community. I'm going to finish with a final quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, not from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, from John Tyson in Beautiful Resistance. Doing your part to convert the church from compromise to conviction, to restore her saltiness and turn up her light, is a cause worth giving your life to. And then he speaks about what we're going to do over these next few weeks. In the chapters ahead, we'll be looking at crucial areas where we must resist compromise in all the beauty of Christ-like love and grace. We all know we should love God and our neighbours, but what does that really mean? What does loving God look like with nuance and texture now? I believe it looks like worship, rest and an insatiable hunger. Likewise, what does it mean to love your neighbour well? I would say it means practising hospitality, giving honour, loving our enemies, making sacrifices and celebrating God's goodness together. A church pursuing that could actually start a beautiful resistance. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, today I want to thank you for your church. Lord, we know it's not perfect. Lord, we know over history it's it's done many things wrong and got many things right. But Lord, I thank you that it's your precious 
possession, that we are your precious possession. Lord, and I thank you that your church is the hope for this world. Lord, stronger than a vaccine, Lord Jesus, your church is the way that you want to bring hope to our city, Lord, through the love of Jesus expressed. And Lord, I pray for each one of us this week that you'll help us to restore the saltiness, to live potent and uncompromising lives in this city. And I pray as a church, Lord, that we would turn up our light, reflecting your love and light into the city around us, Lord Jesus. Amen.